Hello, this is Dr. Kernan Mannion, and you're listening to Physician Interrupted. This is part two of a three-part series on understanding clinician distress, entitled The Matrix of Clinician Distress. And this particular piece is a bit lengthy, as I discovered after I wrote it and posted it. And so therefore, in this podcast, I'm going to be breaking it up into three parts. So you're listening to part 2A, if you will. This is called The Matrix of Clinician Distress, Burnout, Compassion Fatigue, and Moral Injury. Burnout, the parallel epidemic which preceded COVID-19. Now, I want you to know at the outset that I'm no stranger to burnout. I could have been its poster child at the end of 1990s. And that's exactly why I went into physician coaching, as I felt that if I could work my way through it, and I did, with a wonderful coach-informed therapist, I'd devote myself to helping others understand and resolve it. I studied it intensely, and as a psychiatrist specializing in stress, developed a novel, non-clinical understanding of it, and a very pragmatic, systematic approach to resolving it. While many are so used to seeing dramatic attention-getting statistics that they gloss over them, This one ought to compel you to pause to reflect on its magnitude and its implications. 50% of clinicians are suffering from burnout. 50% of clinicians are suffering from burnout. Numerous studies, some conducted annually over the past five years, indicate that upwards of 50% of physicians, and likely nurses, though the studies are less prominent, are currently grappling with burnout to some extent. Burnout defined. Defined according to criteria progressively established by psychologists Christina Maslach and Richard Leiter, the essence of the burnout syndrome is this. It's an occupational stress syndrome characterized by fatigue, detachment, and a reduced sense of accomplishment, which especially afflicts people who do people work of some kind. What's important to understand is that burnout is not like many other illnesses or injuries where you either have it or you don't. Rather, translating Maslach and Leiter's three core criteria, exhaustion, detachment, and reduced accomplishment, into linear scales, I see it as a syndrome showing manifestations of varying intensity in three key domains, the energy domain, the active connection domain, and the professional efficacy domain. So these three domains of burnout symptoms, energy, active connection, and professional efficacy. Now additionally, as we break it down into how stress reactions are known to cluster in four different key types of manifestations, it helps us to understand that each of these domains really ought to be considered as having subdomains of symptom manifestations. 
So presuming that Maslach and Leiter are correct in proposing that these three domains are the main ones that we need to be focusing on in the burnout syndrome, my study and reflection over the years suggests that we can expand the three symptom domains and their manifestations into more subdomains to make it more understandable. So let's look at the energy domain as having cognitive manifestations, emotional manifestations, and physical manifestations. And the active connection domain, likewise, is having cognitive manifestations, emotional manifestations, and physical manifestations. And then the professional efficacy domain as having two different dimensions, one of which is actually reduced output of work. And when I say output, I mean both quality and quantity. Or one's sense of one's own productivity, one's output, one's accomplishment, one's effectiveness, the value of one's effort. So all of these then taken together really sort of breaks it down when you look at it into eight different continua. So what we're thinking about is the, the notion of a continuum. Now, We've all experienced in our various work and life endeavors, depending upon a mix of factors, you can have varying degrees of energy, connection, and a sense of your effectiveness, depending upon where you happen to be situated in your personal and your work life. Now, initially, as I was uh, thinking about this, uh, I, I thought, okay, looking at this as a continuum we then realize that we have a continuum going from left to right. So on the far left, I want you to be envisioning the lower scale, the depletion scale, the negative state. On the far right of the continuum, a well-being or a positive state. Now, really breaking it down to its essentials, instead of it being uh, simply an on-off phenomenon, burnout on, burnout off, you either have it or you don't, I found that that's really a deficient notion and that rather it's helpful to be thinking about it as a continuum and that you can have varying degrees of severity in each of these three main dimensions. So when we think about this then, I decided, all right, well, you know what, there's no such thing as either being burned out or not being burned out, namely, okay, maybe there's somewhat of a continuum and we can put a place in between. And so initially, I divided it up into three, admittedly, very non-scientifically labeled phases. Okayness, wear down, and burnout. In other words, okayness is, I don't have it. I'm okay. I'm in a functional, operational mode with no apparent burnout. And so this is the okayness zone. And most of us, including most clinicians, operate in this okayness zone. The interim phase is the wear down zone. Wear down is where I'm getting beaten up and feeling ragged and weary, but I'm still fully functional although it is costing me in my overall energy level. This is the wear-down state. 
And then we have the burnout state. That's where you are actually burned out. You're fried. And so this is the burnout zone. But even here, remarkably, one is still sufficiently operational, though the quality of one's performance may be diminishing. So again, here we have breaking away from the on-off phenomenon, burnout, you either have it or you don't. We're now looking at an extension of that and looking at a continuum. But what I found was even that was not really sufficient. I think five zones seems more appropriate. I realized that there was a zone above being okay and also a zone below being burned out. And I turned these, I termed these engagement and meltdown. Now, engagement is that state of being really involved, really in flow. Now, it doesn't mean that work is not challenging, but rather that work is fulfilling and energizing and doesn't deplete you. It's in sync with your vision and your objectives. Meltdown, at the other end of the scale, meltdown is a severe state of burnout where you actually see demonstrable effect on one's performance. You're not performing sufficiently and actually may be prone to error, which in healthcare can have drastic consequences. So, on the graph that I posted on the article, you'll see that there is a continuum, three of the scales, energy, involvement, and productivity. And I've broken them down into these subscales. And going from left to right, we have meltdown, burnout, wear down, okayness, and engagement. Engagement, of course, being the optimal phase of one's professional well-being. Now, most of us reside in a state of okayness. But okay is not necessarily healthy. It's just okay. The absence of overt illness. A couch potato, who's not getting any exercise whatsoever, may not be sick, but they're certainly not top-notch well in the sense of energized and engaged. In a way, they're really in a pre-illness state. They're an illness waiting to happen, if you will. Realize that when we start out then, our descent into wear down, we're starting from okayness, not from engagement. We're not optimally engaged. We already have diminished reserves. And so we're really starting our descent into wear down from that state of pre-illness. We've been primed for illness. We're an illness waiting to happen. The next lower zone wear down is like the couch potato now having chest pain, which it turns out is angina. Now, angina is not a disease per se. It's a symptom complex indicating that you've got heart disease caused by blockage of your heart's blood supply. Yes, many don't know that the heart has its own blood supply. 
The heart is really just like any other muscle, although it is a bit more specialized in terms of the way it works. But just like a set of biceps or triceps, it needs a blood supply to keep it going. You can't run a muscle without the fuel to oxygenate it and to give it the oxygen or take away the waste products of carbon dioxide and other breakdown products. As a specialized muscle, the heart has its own blood supply, and those are called the coronary arteries. So when the heart uses up too much energy, namely the need that it has for oxygen and for being uh, delivered the glucose necessary to function, when that happens, let's say, for example, through either extreme exertion or when the coronary arteries can't deliver enough blood because they're all gunked up with sludge, even when the heart is at its non-exertional resting stage. That's angina. It causes pain. And wear down that phase on the work-life continuum, I see as a lot like angina. It's giving us symptoms. When the, blotter, when the uh, arteries, the heart arteries are blocked, uh, they actually can cause muscle injury. And part of that muscle actually dies. It, the term for that is infarcts. And so we refer to that as a myocardial infarction or a heart attack. Burnout is like a heart attack. The heart arteries are blocked and they're not delivering blood flow that the heart needs. When the heart doesn't get the blood it needs, it sends signals, pain for one, nausea for another. And that's the crushing pain of a heart attack. Sometimes the heart's blockage can be so severe that it can cause the heart to go into dangerous rhythms and make it so weak that it can't pump enough blood to the brain, to the lungs, or to the other organ to the body. Now that is a real clinical emergency, and that's when you call the emergency cardiac team for drastic measures to keep the heart going uh, so that the heart can keep the rest of the body going. In the hospital, we call it a code blue. That's a life-threatening cardiac emergency. Severe burnout, what I'm calling meltdown, is such a life-threatening emergency. It is the code blue stage of burnout, and it truly is an occupational emergency. It bears repeating here that studies over the past several years consistently show that more than 50% of physicians currently are experiencing some degree of burnout. Reflect on that for a moment. That's like saying that more than half of your workforce either has severe angina or is having or has had a heart attack and even worse, there's a stream of people lining up with code blues waiting to happen. That's not exactly a healthy workplace. So what's the impact of burnout? Well, greatly diminished quality of life, for one. Diminished investment in work, which is, of course, in healthcare, comprised of patient care. 
there's an increased risk as a result of making an error in one's clinical work. There is increased attrition, job transition from the current clinical staff position, and thus there's disruption of the workflow of the entire care team. There's increased career transition entirely out of clinical practice altogether, away from the clinical practice of medicine because of burnout too severe. There's increased risk of substance misuse and abuse. And there's an increased risk of depression and even suicide. These are pretty drastic potential impacts of burnout. The next of the three major categories we're considering in this segment is compassion fatigue. Have you ever been so emotionally spent that you felt like you had nothing left to give, nothing left to offer? When you're too used up like that, there's just simply nothing left to go around. The well of caring has dried up. In short, that's what compassion fatigue is. Sometimes now, what looks like compassion fatigue is actually a strategic emotional ecology decision that might better be termed compassion restriction. But keep in mind, it's not a decision in the conscious sense. Rather, it's an unconscious restriction of the emotional flow from the well, the emotional well. You may not know that the body has a variety of these sorts of self-preservation fail-safes that are built in. For example, when you're out in the freezing cold and you're losing critically needed body temperature because it's so awfully cold, there's a pre-programmed fail-safe mechanism that orders the peripheral and superficial circulatory system, all those tiny arteries near the surface of the skin, to close up. And they close up so as to shut down any further warm blood flow to the surface and thus prevent further heat loss and preserve critically important body temperature. And all of this is in the service of preventing any more loss of body heat through the superficial surfaces of the skin. Now, of course, that emergency bypass mechanism serves a beneficial purpose, namely preserving core body temperature to maintain vital functions, but it can only do that for a limited time. And then, because of lack of necessary blood flow to the surface areas, frostbite will then kick in. So it's important to stress that while compensatory fail-safe mechanisms exist in a variety of systems, including that of coping with burnout, they are designed only as emergency fallbacks and thus are very short-lived in their duration of effectiveness. So we really ought to think about them as the elective emotional ecology of compassion fatigue, and that is an example of one of those fail-safe mechanisms. 
How does compassion fatigue fit with our overall understanding of stress? Most people show an array of symptoms when they experience stress, especially chronic stress. Stress activates a stress response, which consists of a variety of emotional and physiological bodily cascades that take a toll on the body. If there's such a thing as a good emotion bank account, and I believe there is, stress uses it up quickly. Stress causes a major draw on the emotion bank account. It's an emotion depletion machine. And chronically, it can dry up the emotional bank account entirely. Just like your bank account, that well needs to be replenished on a regular basis. Unremitting stress prevents that replenishment from happening. Chronic stress is like continuous war. What do we look like when we're stressed? We've all been there, stressed to the max, some on an ongoing basis. While there are a host of physiological and psychological responses to stress, I think two processes pertaining to our emotional regulation really deserve highlighting here. Affect constriction. Now, affect is another fancy term for emotion. Affect constriction. Now, recall the above emotional ecology that I mentioned. And affective rawness. Let's take a look at affective constriction. This is like how you feel when you've been trying to pay attention and express concern. But when you're war-weary or you're so sleep-deprived, you're like a zombie. You have a diminished affective range, what we in psychiatry refer to as a blunted affect. And sometimes it's so blunted it approaches emotional flatness, the equivalent of an empty gas tank. Think of someone who used to talk with normal tone, like I'm talking right now, normal volume and modulation, but who's now talking in diminished monotone. And it's not that they want to talk like that. It's that's how, that's how it just comes out. That's all they have left. They can't really even modulate their volume or their tone. Now, the other dimension we spoke about was affective or emotional rawness. This is the loss of the ability to hold on to one's emotions and hold them in check, predominantly the unpleasant ones, the negative emotions. And I see these as five biggies, anger, anxiety, sadness, shame, and hurt. Irritability actually seems to be the most prominent manifestation for most people. But easy tearfulness is another one. The negative emotions now easily flood the system and come out quite readily. You know, when you scrape your skin, you develop a covering called a scab. And there's healing going on underneath that scab. And so, like pulling off a scab, causing the underlying wound to seep that same loss of protection happens with affect dysregulation. 
So affect dysregulation simply means that our emotions are no longer held in check. Now, truth be told, it's probably wired in as a core instinct. After all, isn't that a great warning sign when we're hungry, thirsty, tired? Irritability surfaces. And it's telling us we need to check in with ourselves on those things. And as many of us know, either because of our own attitude or because of someone else who's in that irritable state, it can get nasty because it's disinhibited. There's no protection against it for the person who's exhibiting it. It's reactive, it's impulsive in quality. Emotional fragility is another manifestation of affective rawness. It's sometimes mistermed emotional lability. But not to stress the fine points too much here, emotional lability is more indicative of an overall dysregulated affect as a whole, both the negative and the positive emotions. So in emotional lability, just as you might see a disproportionate reactive anger, you'll also see an inappropriate reactive happiness, sometimes even bordering on mania. But in the state of affect constriction, you're generally not going to see that kind of swing of emotion. With emotional fragility, there's easy breakthrough of sadness and tearfulness and an intensification and outward expression, often even to the point of flooding of mostly negative emotions. Now, where does compassion fatigue fit in the overall clinician distress matrix? Well, first realize that though it's frequently accompanied with burnout, compassion fatigue can exist entirely independently of burnout. But when considering it as part of the phenomenology of burnout, think back to those scales that we have described, the continuum on the burnout spectrum. I believe it's a manifestation of the emotional exhaustion component on that primary energy continuum. Emotional exhaustion is, from my perspective, perhaps the most prominent symptom we see in burnout. Now, realize when we have that kind of affect constriction, that kind of emotional dullness, it's not that I don't care. It's that I can't care, no matter how much I try. I feel like I have nothing else to give even though I want to care, even though that's who I am as a caring person and why I entered this caregiver field. In fact, you see, the very contrast between who I've defined myself to be and how I'm now feeling and presenting now really creates a core identity conflict for myself. And that disconnection, that dissynchrony, creates pain for the person who is a caregiver, 
note the word caregiver, because they can't now give care. And that's adding to their negative emotional load and further depleting their emotional bank account. Now, in this way, the overall depressed, dysphoric state of burnout itself becomes its own pain syndrome. So not only do you have the effects of burnout on those three continua, but the very cumulative presence of burnout itself as a dysphoric state is now adding to your distress. And that distress, combined with all the other stuff that's contributed to the burnout syndrome and the way it's manifesting, really intensify each other. And the more one can't make sense of it, the more one can't make it go away, the more frustrated and trapped one feels. And the more that happens, the more one's emotional reserves are depleted even further. It's like the depression of depression. Not only do I have depression, I'm depressed that I'm depressed. And I can't get out of it. So we have an inherently built-in mechanism that is going to aggravate the syndrome itself. So as you can see, the syndrome itself is really wired to create its own self-acceleration. And that, again, is why we have to get a handle on it more quickly. Often, the compounded effect of burnout and depression about burnout, those two together lead one into a psychological downward spiral. They can easily become a death spiral. The analogy to a plane's death spiral is a very appropriate one. Pilots describe the death spiral as a phenomenon in which a rapidly descending, diving plane can get into such an intense descent and spin that it can no longer pull itself out. It can no longer right itself as the mechanisms for the lift adjusters, which are located on the back of the wings. They can no longer hold up to that kind of downward force they can't make sufficiently timely difference in pulling the plane away from its nosedive and correcting the accelerated descent. And so we know what happens with that. When a clinician feels they're shortchanging their patients by not manifesting their generally authentic spirit of caring that they normally provide, they feel like they're not being true to themselves. This is not me, they say. It's not who I am. I'm a caring person who's chosen to take care of these sick people and use my knowledge and skills to do so. And that coexists with their correct observation. But me, right now, this non-caring person is who I am. And then, simultaneous with that, almost concurrently, but perhaps unconsciously, another sentiment surfaces that says, but I don't want to be this way. I don't want to be who I am right now. As if they're saying to themselves or someone else, make it go away, help me. 
but they can't make it go away. And you can't make it go away until you understand what's causing it and name its core components. The longer that discrepancy of who I see myself as and who I currently am, the longer that discrepancy stays in place, the longer the persistence of pain. It's a deep internal dissonance, a contrast between the present self and the former self. And the former self was closer to my ideal self. And that deep dissonance, that pain, causes emotional depletion. And that emotional depletion blends with the emotional depletion of the burnout syndrome itself. And that causes a massive draw on one's emotional bank account. It accelerates, just like a nosedive. It accelerates emotional bankruptcy. So the detrimental impact of compassion fatigue is not just its pulling back of kindness and compassion, and I say pulling back not necessarily in a voluntary way, it happens. This seldom recognized complex component of compassion fatigue intensifies my war with myself not just with the syndrome, but I'm at war with myself for having the compassion fatigue and for being stuck in it. And that's why one of the early tasks of the coach or the therapist in working with someone who's grappling with compassion fatigue and burnout is to help the burned out doc or nurse and as I said, for short, we're using the term clinician for all direct care providers, to try to help them stop adding to their misery via this compounding, self-critical way of, oh, look at me, I'm burned out. Look at me, I don't feel compassionate the way I used to. And then they go about shaming themselves. What's the impact of compassion fatigue? Well, a person with compassion fatigue is not only less available emotionally and authentically, the way we want to be in the world, that diminished emotional energy, or what some refer to as chi, as in Tai Chi, diminishes their clinical effectiveness. Further, due to this tying them up in a war with themselves and using up even more emotional energy in that war, it, takes them, it makes them less available overall for the complex healthcare work at hand. This is a great opportunity for us to pause before we delve into moral injury, and that'll be part 2B of our series on the matrix of clinician distress. <laughs>